you will turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. It's on page 1028 of the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. As you're turning there, I want to go back and just revisit one of the announcements, and that's the men's retreat coming up in two weeks. Uh, Bob Berner wasn't able to be here with us this morning. Uh, He was going to make an announcement in his own Bob-like way that I can't do, but I do want to just share a couple of things with you. Um, It's a great time of fellowship. Uh, As Shep mentioned earlier, we'll be looking at the topic of the purity of a godly man. Uh, Rumor has it there are 16-ounce steaks Friday, which is, uh, I don't know if that's to be split or if we're supposed to eat those individually, but uh, those will be there. And then uh, there's also an opportunity to play golf uh, on Friday uh, before the retreat starts, and there's some other activities as well. Uh, They're available Saturday, and so you can register uh, this week and even up until next Sunday. And if you have questions uh, this morning, you can see David Kimry. He'll be out in the uh, lobby there, and there's an opportunity to register right there at the table, and you can talk to him with your questions. But we do encourage you men to sign up for that, and I look forward to that weekend together. All right, as we head into this passage so far, we've looked at two different letters to churches uh, that Jesus has written and spoken to them, and now we come to a third, and it's a letter to the church in Pergamum. So let's read it and ask God to help us to understand what he has for us today. This is Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Let us pray together. Father, we come to this passage this morning needing to hear good news, needing to hear a reminder of the love of Jesus Christ for his people, needing help from your spirit to put one foot in front of the other and to follow you. And so we pray that you would help us this morning, that we would see Christ and that we would see our need for him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This past Wednesday, of course, was Valentine's Day, and maybe you remember some of those times as a kid when you received a card or a letter, and maybe it was Snoopy or Batman or Hello Kitty or whoever it may be, wishing you a happy Valentine's Day. 
And it happened on more than one occasion for me as a child that I would get one of those Valentine's Day cards or letters, and it would say, Dear Brain, Happy Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, this actually still happens. I get the occasional email. I won't name any names. And they'll say, Dear Brain, at the top. And I think back to those Valentine's Day cards. I suppose there are worse things I could be called. And that brings us to this letter that we're looking at here in Revelation. And this time it's to the church at Pergamum. And we would love for this to, in the spirit of this week, read like a Valentine's Day card. But I would probably guess that most of the Valentines we've received in our lifetime probably don't refer to our city as the place where Satan dwells or call us to task for holding to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. But as we look at this letter, we will see that here's Jesus and his great love for us, preparing to go to battle on behalf of his people, calling us to repent, to draw near to him, and even promising us rewards, the hidden manna, a new name, those sort of things. And certainly that new name is probably one that's better than brain. So as we look at this letter, we're going to see all this before us. We're going to break it down to five different points or sections. Now, I just said I'm going to do a five-point sermon, but don't worry. They're, all, they're short. And the five points will be this. that We're going to see the revealer, the receiver of the letter, We'll see the reality of their situation, the response that is called for, and then finally the reward that Jesus promises. So first we're going to see the revealer of this letter. And once again, as we've seen in the first two letters, Jesus is the one who is speaking to the churches. He knows them. He is present with them. He is actively at work in the lives of his people. In the previous descriptions of Jesus in the letters to Ephesus and to Smyrna, he was described as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands, and then as the one who is the first and the last who died and came to life. And here in this letter, he's described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. You see, Jesus, our King and Lord, is armed for battle. And so right away we understand that this letter might read a little differently, that there's some sort of evil afoot in Pergamum. And that Jesus reminds them that as his king, as their king and Lord, that he is speaking to them, and that he comes ready to do battle against the sin that is in their midst. So first, the revealer of the letter is Jesus, who is armed for battle. Secondly, we see the receiver of this letter, It's the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was located about 55 or so miles north of Smyrna that we talked about last week. It was 15 miles from the coast. We see here that Jesus knows and understands where they're situated. He knows where they live, and he says it's where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. That's probably not the slogan they had on their tourist material. But why does Jesus say this about Pergamum? There's a lot of reasons. Pergamum have large altars and temples honoring gods like Zeus and Athena, as well as other gods like Dionysus and Asclepios, who was the god of healing. Asclepios, in particular, was viewed as a savior by many in Pergamum. On top of all that, Pergamum had become 
a center for the imperial cult of Rome. And Caesar was to be called and considered Lord. So here in the midst of Satan's throne, in the face of worship, of the worship of other gods, and of the demanding of allegiance to Caesar, here's a church, a church in Pergamum that belongs to Jesus. So Christians who call Jesus their Lord and Savior, while were living in a place where emperor worship and the worship of other gods was prevalent, where those gods were claiming to be saviors, and there was an emperor who was claiming to be Lord, that were demanding their attention and allegiance. This certainly led to persecution, and it's documented here in the passage in verse 13 with the mention of Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas, but we know that Jesus refers to him here as a faithful witness. And that's actually the same title that's ascribed to Jesus himself and other places in Revelation. And we do know that Antipas died because he remained true to the faith, even unto death. Perhaps it was because he would not call Caesar Lord that he was put to death. Because he instead held true to Christ. So this is the situation. This is the environment that the church in Pergamum existed in. And as we're about to see, some of this environment would expose them to confusion as a church. So we've seen the revealer, Jesus, and the receiver, the church in Pergamum. And thirdly, we want to examine the reality of the situation in the church. So let's start with the good news. That seems like a good thing to do. In the face of persecution, in the face of such pressure and opposition, in an environment where there's all these other gods and rulers demanding their allegiance, the people of the church in Pergamum were holding fast to the name of Christ. And they had not denied him, although it seems there were daily opportunities to do just that. For the most part, it seems they were staying true to the faith. This should certainly encourage us and be a reminder for us that when trials come, when persecution shows up in various forms for the people of God, that we're not to simply wilt and cower in fear, but we're to hold fast to our Lord and Savior Jesus because we know that he is holding fast to us. If I may speak for a minute to the students who are here this morning, you need to know that there's going to be a time in your life, if it hasn't happened already, where your faith in some way will be tested. It may be in a college classroom or on a job or in a relationship, but there will be a time when you are put to the test. And when that time comes, you need to recognize that one of the lessons here is it's not just a time to just kind of roll over and give in and just say, okay, I'm just going to go with the flow. But it's actually a time to dig in and to strengthen your grip and continue to hold fast to Jesus who is holding on to you. No one's ever said it was going to be easy to follow Christ and to be a Christian. And so we have this verb here, to hold fast. We see it in other places in the Scripture too. It's, it's a continuous action, and it indicates faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25, gives us a similar encouragement. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we see here we're to hold that in order to hold fast, we must be looking to the one who is holding fast to us, who is faithful, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we also recognize that we don't hold fast to him alone, but that we do so together as the church, as the body of Christ. And so the reality in Pergamum, in a good news sense, is that they were holding fast and they were not denying Jesus. But then there's a pretty big however here, isn't there? There were some dangerous teachings creeping into the church that would certainly begin to undermine their faithfulness if they continue to go unchecked. Jesus indicates that there are some in the church who are holding fast to something else besides Him. Namely, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. That sounds kind of like a good band name. I wouldn't recommend it. We have a group of Christians who's being faithful. But in their midst, there are some who are holding on to some false teachings that we'll begin to kind of examine here in a minute. But the kicker here is it seems that Jesus' rebuke is not just for those who are holding to the various false teachings, but it's also directed toward the faithful Christians who have perhaps in some way accommodated or enabled or ignored the drifting of some toward this false teaching in the church. So what exactly are they falling into here? Well, Balaam, who is mentioned here, is a character from the book of Numbers. If you have some time later today, you can read his story in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. I did not make that the scripture reading for today, although it was tempting. We'd still be reading it. But you can go read there and you can read about Balaam and Balak in in this story. But here's the short version. Balak, who was king of Moab, had called Balaam to request that he curse the tribes of Israel as they were getting ready to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But there was a problem. When Balaam would speak, blessing would come out of his mouth instead of cursing. This leads to frustration for Balak as a king who's called this prophet to come pronounce some curses, and he's pronouncing blessings. But Balaam can only speak what God gives him to speak. However, we see clues that Balaam has his own struggles. And there's even an incident where God speaks through Balaam's donkey while he's on a journey to get his attention. But eventually we learn it's through an error of Balaam that the Moabites invite the Israelites to come with them and to take part in some idolatry and some immoral feasting, which is detailed in Numbers chapter 25. The whole situation gets summed up later in Numbers Chapter 31, verse 16, where it says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 2, there's a, a group there that's also compared to Balaam that gives us insight into his era, his error. It says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression 
a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So what do we learn here about Balaam? Well, he loved gain from wrongdoing. He was stubborn enough that a donkey had to rebuke him. Just think about that for a little bit. And that his error had led to Israel getting mixed up with the Moabites, which therefore led them into idolatry and immorality. Going back to our passage, the Nicolaitans that are mentioned here are apparently following the same line of thinking. As they are insisting on freedom to the extent where it's idolatry and immorality, that those are the things that are beginning to run free. So we see there's a stumbling block that's been put in the midst of the people. And things like idolatry and sexual morality, things that are often intertwined together when we see these things happening in the Scripture, that they have entered into the church. And so if that's the reality in Pergamum, that there were those who were holding fast to Christ, but also there were those who were holding fast to these other teachings, what is the response that Jesus calls for? How are we as the church and as individuals to respond to this letter? How are we to understand how it applies to us? Well, there's a lot to consider. And the first question I think we want to ask ourselves this morning is who or what are we holding fast to? Who or what are we putting our faith and trust in? For the folks in Pergamum, it was clear that they could either hold fast to Jesus or they were holding fast to something else. There was no middle ground. There was no fence sitting. It was either you were with Jesus or you had fallen for something or someone else. And though names like Balaam and the Nicolaitans, that kind of seems foreign to us. The errors that it led to for those people of idol worship, of the practice of immorality, those things are not so foreign to us. Thinking that someone else might save us. Thinking that the pursuit of power might give us significance. Thinking the pursuit of pleasure in an immoral way might give us happiness. Or that the pursuit of money might give us security. These thoughts can lead us to loosen our grip of faith while reaching out and grasping for these idols. It's like grasping at the wind. It just falls right through your fingers. And so, here we're instructed, we must be the ones to hold fast to Christ, to hold fast to His Word, and to come together and encourage one another to do so. Another response to this passage is what Jesus directly says to them and to us. And that's to repent. It's to repent of our sins and to turn to Him. Repentance involves a change of direction, a confessing of our our sins and how we've displeased God, and turning from those things which do not please Him, and turning toward Him, seeking to follow His ways. In this case, the Pergamon people were to repent, certainly if they had been committing these sins of idolatry and immorality, but also their call to repentance even if they had not been particularly doing those things themselves, but had in some way not led others toward repentance and had in some way allowed for this teaching to infiltrate the church and not gone to their brothers and sisters in the Lord to encourage them and to even in a loving way rebuke them. So Jesus calls them all to repentance. He calls them 
to turn away from those things and to turn towards Him. And He says after this gracious invitation to repent, that if they do not, that there's a consequence. And that He is coming to do, do battle and He's bringing His sword with Him. And this is not some kind of distant, far-off allusion to the second coming. This is, a, this is a reminder here that Jesus is living and active. And that we face, when we sin, temporal consequences. We face consequences when we go a different way from what the Lord has called us to. And so He calls us here to repent. To ask God to reveal our sin to us. To confess those sins to Him. To seek His forgiveness. To remember what He has done for us at the cross where He took our sin and He put it upon His shoulders. And He gave us the righteousness that He had lived uh, and gained for us. He gave, gave that to us so that we can be right with God. To claim that, to follow Him. And then as we do so, to lead others to repentance. As we seek to, to repent of our sins and follow Jesus, we might want to say, well, what, what else does that look like? And what are some other responses we see here in this passage? Well, there's several that we can, I think, infer from what we've heard here today. And the first is we, we have to beware of deception and beware of false teaching. You have to get our radars kind of up and working. It's not like in the situation everything was going great and then some people kind of showed up and said, hey, we're the Nicolaitans. We're going to teach you some bad things. And then 24 hours later, they were all upside down. It's more than likely that over time, there had been a progression and that everybody's guard had come down a little bit. And people were deceived into thinking they needed something beyond Jesus. And they were deceived into thinking, hey, I can be free to participate in these idol feasts and things of that nature. And eventually, those who didn't even do those things, they were maybe deceived that, hey, if other people are doing those things, it's all good, it doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, they're all in a place where they need to repent because they've ignored what has happened. And they haven't addressed the situation that's coming to their church. And they haven't looked toward Jesus. And so one of the lessons here is that we have to be alert. We have to be watchful. And we do that by diving further into the truth of Scripture, diving further into the good news of the gospel, and asking for wisdom and discernment to evaluate the things that we see and hear in our culture and to put everything subject to what the Scripture teaches. And then that together as a church, we walk together by faith as we learn together and grow together and seek to direct one another towards Christ rather than away from Him. Another response, and this is just summed up, I think, really well in Romans 12, and it's this phrase, to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We must remember that we have to identify sin and call it what it is. That when we see it in our own hearts, bubbling up to the surface, that we grab it right there, we confess it, we run to our Savior, we run to His forgiveness and His cleansing. Yet this also applies to how we view good and evil in the world around us. And how do we respond to it? 
when we see atrocities happen like we saw this past week in Florida, do we take time to grieve the brokenness of this world and the loss of life? Do we cry out to God to bring comfort and hope now in the midst of such pain? Do we, do we find ourselves yearning for a time when evil is no more? When Satan has seen his final defeat, when sadness and pain and grief are gone, when our Savior has wiped every tear from our eye. And as we wait for that day, as we, as we look forward to that time that is to come, into here and now, do we hate what is evil? Do we cling to what is good? We must hold fast to Christ because He is the one who's not going to let us go. And then we must do what we can, where He has called us, to bring light into darkness, to bring love into the hatred that is so prevalent in our world. So we're to hate what is evil, we're to cling to what is good. Furthermore, we're to resist temptation. Here's another response. And then while we're at it, do not entice others into sin. And so we know for the people in Pergamum, the temptation toward idolatry and immorality was going to be a constant thing. It was going to be something that kind of never shut off for them. And we certainly face similar temptations. Idolatry for us is not something we have to go down to the local temple to to try to seek out some other gods to find, but it comes to us right into our hands through our phones. It shouts at us from billboards. It comes through sound systems while we drive. It comes through our TV screens. But even beyond all that, it comes from our own hearts. The temptation to worship other things, to have our identity shaped by other things, is constantly before us. And the catechism we recited earlier reminds us, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil never stop attacking us. And so we must pray. Lord, uphold us. Make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down and defeat in the spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. So we must resist temptation, calling upon the Lord to help us as it's constantly before us. And furthermore, we must not go the way of Balaam and entice others into sin whether willfully or by ignorance. And so we want to ask ourselves the question, are we leading others, our children, our friends, our co-workers, are we leading them towards Christ or are we leading them away from Him in some way? And finally, there's a response here that I'll just call the surround sound of love and truth. There's been times in my life where I've driven a car in which one speaker was working and the others were not. There, maybe it was buzzing or, buzzing or crackling and whatever, and the speaker was not producing sound. And So there I am trying to drive down the road and listen to tunes, and I'm getting half a song. Maybe there's a time, you know, you've had like an old TV and you didn't have any of the fancy speakers attached to it. It was just sound coming out of the TV. And it's all right, but you don't really hear the full picture. But when you get all the speakers into the car working properly, or maybe you hook up that that sound system to your TV and everything's coming in full, all of a sudden the song you're listening to 
sporting event you're watching, the movie that you're seeing, it all comes to life because you're hearing every detail of sound to the fullest. So I think one of the lessons here is that we are called to present a surround sound of Christianity, of love and of truth to the world. One of the things we hear clearly in this passage is the calling for us as Christians to guard the the truth of the gospel, and to be zealous for the truth, and to proclaim it, and to declare it, and to subject these things to God's word. And so there's this angle of truth here. Yet at the same time, as we do that, we don't want to forget the concern of the letter to the church in Ephesus. The concern of that letter was, hey, do not neglect love. Do not forsake your first love. Sometimes we tend to swing the pendulum from one to the other. Maybe we speak truth without love or we love while neglecting the truth. But God's word calls us to a surround sound sort of living where love and truth come together in a boisterous symphony and that others hear it and see it and are led towards the source of that love and truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, Let us not love just in word or in talk, but let us love in actions and in truth. So friends, this morning we can respond to the glorious truth of the gospel, to the good news, by loving Jesus, by loving one another in truth, and presenting that surround sound gospel to the world. So those are the responses that Jesus has called for. And finally, there's a reward that he promises And there's two rewards here that he gives. He invites us to listen to him, to to conquer, to overcome with him. And he promises to his people the hidden manna and the white stone. Now, I'm going to tell you after reading a good bit this week, it's inconclusive exactly what these things are talking about in a lot of ways. But we do know that manna rings a bell because that's what God provided for his people in the Old Testament. And we know that He will certainly provide for us what we need. And that He has heavenly food that is particularly available for His people. That it's not for those who don't know Him. We also know that Christ is the bread of life. That He was what the manna was pointing toward. That ultimately He is our provision. That He gave Himself to suffer and to die for us. To give us life. And that He sustains us here as we live faithfully for Him, awaiting for His return. And finally, in this passage, we see these, this reference about the white stones with a new name. and We don't have time to break down all the different things this could be. But the bottom line is this, is that there is an assurance here for us that if we, we who hold fast to the name of Christ, who have confessed His name as the one name that saves, and that belong to Him by faith, that we will receive a new name. Because we've been made new. We've been transformed through the salvation that's given to us in Christ. And that we are assured of living in the presence of our King forever. And that He personally knows us and He loves us by name. And that nothing can come between us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. This this is good news for us today. Let us pray. Father, we 
need your grace. We need your help. We need the Spirit at work in us. We need to look to Christ who is faithful. And we need to hold fast to him. And so we pray that you would help us this day. That you would remind us of your love for us. Lord, that if, if we are in a place where we need to repent of our sins, which that's something that we must continually do, um, that we all must do, Lord, that you would remind us of that, that you would take us by the hand, that you would lead us back to the cross, and that you would assure us uh, that we are yours and that we belong to you and that we can walk with you daily. Thank you so much for your word to us today. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.